Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. Thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go. It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and down the screen in Melbourne, Jeff Lemon, back in the sauna by the looks of things as well. Hello, Jeff. A lot going on this week. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always good to get a bit of timber behind you if possible. Plenty going on as ever. The India-Australia women's test match wrapped up in a drawer as we expected with the rain intervening, but we'll go through a fair bit of detail on that. Uh, the the weekly what's happening with the ashes segment. I tell you what, I'm pretty bored of this segment by now because like, just play it or don't. But don't don't toy with their emotions. Um, but we've also got Philip Brown on the show, one of the the greats of cricket photography. The lovely book he brought out a couple of months ago, and we're using that to go through it with him and have a chat about some of the images and the stories behind them. Yes, that chat's already happened, and I can confirm it's a lovely conversation. So stick around for the second half of the show for that. In the IPL, Maxi's made three half centuries in a row. That's all I really know about the Indian Premier League at the moment because we've had the, the very end of the English season, which finished at Lords last week with the Bob Willis Trophy, Warwickshire, 
essentially doing a double, winning the championship and the cup. I'm not sure whether it'll be um, set up in, in mm-hmm. that way in the future, but they have done it in the space of two weeks, two trophies. So we're thinking about the Australian season. The bridge is all the T20 being played in the UAE, both in the IPL, then the T20 World Cup, where teams are leaving for later in the week for their uh, quarantine in, in various parts of that country and Oman as well. So there's a lot going on in the short form, but all of our attention invariably uh, is drawn towards this melodrama with the Ashes, Jeff. Well, and, and the reason we're going to start I, the show there... I can tell you one thing just quickly before we do that. Sorry. Royal Challengers Bangalore are in the finals. Are they? They're in, they've stitched it up. Maxi stitched it up for them with a quick 50 the other night when AB de Villiers was batting like a busted ass. Who got the runs and got the job done? Glenn Maxwell. Where yeah, did so they finish? They, where, where are they on the ladder? I think they're third at the moment, but they won't. They can't fall below fourth, um, no matter what happens from here. So they will play playoffs, and all of those people on the internet who love the captaincy of Eric Colley uh, will be will be able to see the, another chance for him to win a title with RCB. I saw Maxie said something in the post-game interview to the effect of over the last couple of years in professional cricket, you know, it's been going well, and, and he was talking in, in in the broader sense of the term, you know, for Australia. Victoria, I suppose. Big Bash had a good Big Bash last year and the year before too. But that was taken out of context and misquoted as saying, I've had a good last two years in the IPL. He didn't say that at all. And he got piled on by fans, presumably of Kings Eleven Punjab, who he bossed yesterday, um, but didn't mm-hmm. make as many runs for as he would have liked uh, in the previous iteration of the tournament. <laughs> so all the fun of the fair for, for Maxi at the IPL, but we'll be keeping a close eye, I guess, on the playoffs because he's playing. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to start this week with the women's test, and that's going to be the main conversation we have in segment one. However, the statement from the ECB that lobbed about an hour ago is worth just touching on off the top. It does it does at least a little bit change the framework of the conversation that's been ongoing about the Ashes. So where we left this last week was that Cricket Australia were going to send to the ECB the final quarantine provisions. The sense we got from Joe Root is that they were pretty chilled about what they were hearing. There was no guarantees. They were going to look at what they were... They were going to go through with the fine-tooth comb, get the final mm-hmm. offer. But, you know, he said himself he was... Dead keen to go, desperate to be part of an Ashes series, all the rest of it. My interpretation late last week when doing a couple of interviews about this was that, well, kind of disaster averted. And then we had the news from the Australian government, National Cabinet to be precise, that from probably November the 14th, you can fly into Australia, you can fly into Sydney and do seven days home quarantine, Um, not even go into Hotel Q, no more international caps. This all felt like, well, any hurdles that were left really have been have been knocked down before they've had to think about it too seriously with still six weeks to go until they're meant to fly into Australia. However, Jeff, the statement from the ECB this morning does leave considerable wriggle room for them to pull out altogether, which feels a touch out of step with what we're hearing in Australia at the moment. Yeah, so here's the... This is the... The closing paragraph was the only one that actually mattered in this statement. The rest of it was, we are talking to our players and we are talking to Australia. Yes, no shit, thank you. The closing part... Later this week, the ECB board will meet to decide whether the conditions in place are sufficient for the tour to go ahead and enable the selection of a squad befitting a series of this significance. Now, two things to note here. One is that they capitalise the word tour, which means maybe they're talking about the bicycle race. Maybe this is all just a red herring to, 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 to send they've us got down the, the wrong uh, path. They've, they've got the bug from that CA statement that went out, that, that was hurried out the door with Justin yeah. Langer a couple of weeks ago with random capitalisations all the way 
through it. It's like it was written by a boomer on their phone. Yeah, big, so maybe big Gary Ablett in his car energy when you're just throwing in the random caps. Um, <laughs> so, so the tour, look, maybe the ECB, it does have a silent W in it for Wales, the England and Wales Cricket Board. So maybe the C also stands for cycling, the England Cycling Board, but probably not. But, but basically the hint of that is we don't want to have to pick a squad of random no-hopers because the main players aren't going to come. So they're, they're pretty much saying if our good players won't go, then we won't go, which, you know, that's the, the bit that might give you some cause for concern. I still have the belief that the Ashes will happen no matter what because there's too much money involved and all of this is just positioning. It's all it's all for leverage. It's all to make sure they get the, the best possible deal and, and to make sure that CA is fighting tooth and nail to get the ECB what they want. But it does just give them... It does just raise the possibility that it could not. Right. So it feels to me as though, as you say, Jeff, this is about leverage and just making sure that they get everything they want in this final offer. However, where I think there's a degree of inconsistency here is that I think they're going to get that anyway, just because the law mm. of the land is changing very quickly. I mean, I was able to jump on Qantas's website on Friday morning and book flights home. Now, I know I'm an Australian citizen, so that that means that I don't have the same challenge as the England players on, on that front. But if they're allowing people to fly home on full flights to Sydney as of, you know, November, middle of November or whatever it works out to be once the, the, the nation hits 80%, Queensland's getting to 80% according to projections by the 4th of December, four days before the first Ashes test. It feels like everything is actually at long last in Australia, moving in the right direction, and they're going to get there just in the nick of time. I would still say it'd be advisable to start the Ashes a fraction later, but if they're going to start on December 8 as planned, and CA have been rather adamant about this, it, it doesn't feel anywhere near as problematic as it did a month ago when it was so unclear uh, whether the vaccination rate would get to 80% in time. It was very unclear about what quarantine provisions would be there for the England team. It might be that, Jeff, they've seen this Sheffield Shield game get cancelled last week. They see horrible stories like the one that was circulating on social media yesterday about the, the poor woman who came to England to, um, you know, to bury her dying mother and couldn't get back into Australia because quarantine was full and she's got three kids waiting at home. And I mean, you mm. hear horrible stories like that and they do get amplified via social media. And I would understand... I totally respect why there's a degree of trepidation when you hear stuff like that. However, a more balanced view would be that Australia is actually going to be fine. They'll probably end up mm. doing seven days home quarantine, not 14, if they are willing to fly into New South Wales, for example, which might have another degree of complexity with Queensland trailing New South Wales on the vaccine front. But they have a lot of options now that didn't feel available to them a month ago when this conversation first came to the boil. And their best case scenario looks a lot better than it did yeah, exactly. uh, a couple of months ago as well. So it does feel like these concerns are about six weeks out of date. If you were travelling to Australia right now today to play the series, you would have these concerns. But if you've got a couple of months bought time ahead of you, then it doesn't seem like there's so, there's so much need to be concerned. And it does puzzle me this sort of, this thing that you're talking about of stories coming up on the news in the UK and in the US and so on, pointing at Australia and saying, oh, look how terrible it is. They're being mean to people by making them do quarantine and having restrictions and so on. There's like a million dead people between those two countries and there aren't in Australia. I mean, I can tell you which one I'd rather be in, in terms of how they've handled this virus and this disease. It, it's it's a bizarre thing for a couple of countries that have absolutely screwed it at every possible juncture to the point that literally a million people are dead 
that they want to point at a country that hasn't had that happen and say, oh, the real problem's happening over there. That is truly bizarre to me. Well, let's exclude America from this because their vaccination um, uptake hasn't been what it's been in the UK. I would put to you in response to that that um, the fact that uh, the, the over 80% of people in this country have been double jabs for yonks reflects the fact that they got part two right after catastrophically botching part one. That doesn't deny critics from the outside saying that Australia botched part two because Australia did botch part two. Mm. Australia would be open right now. You wouldn't be in lockdown right now if the federal government didn't fuck up their vaccine acquisition and they didn't have such timid support for AstraZeneca at the crucial time um, when they basically said you can go vaccine shopping in order to try and make sure that they hoover up preferences from nutbag anti-vaxxers at the next federal election. If none of that happened, we'd be at 80% in Oz already and this would this, this you know this knock-on effect with the ashes wouldn't even be a conversation. So yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable for... England's players to see, to be living where they're living right now in an open country and seeing Australia and thinking, fuck, you know, are they, oh, gee, is it really going to happen? Like 12, 12 million people in lockdown now, we're meant to be there, what, next month? Is it really going to be, you know, I, I get why there's anxiety, but I wish that the statement today acknowledged that things have gotten dramatically better in the last month. I completely yep. agree. If you were starting the Ashes next week, well, you couldn't. You, you couldn't. The caravan could not move from state to state the way that CA will want it to to make sure the state associations mm. get what they need out of it. The TV networks couldn't move around either and it would be a shit show. But it's not going to be a shit show on the 8th of December when the ashes are meant to start based on the best forecasts that we've got at the moment. And the government wouldn't have made those announcements last week unless they, the forecasts were robust. Imagine they said to the world, Australia's open for business from the middle of November only to fuck mm. it up. I mean, that, you, you, they would never do that. <laughs> expectation management wise so I'm sure they're being conservative even with what they said last week so like you said Jeff maybe six weeks out of date speaking of robust forecasts I enjoyed the this is just a little bit of local flavor for those of you in the UK over the weekend in Melbourne uh, there was a forecast for about six days of rain in a row just rain 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 Saturday and Sunday both beautiful there was a bit of rain in the evening but you know a lot of sunny long sunny patches during the day lovely time to go and have a picnic the theory circulating now is that the premier dan andrews is uh, working with the bureau of meteorology to fix the weather forecast so that people don't make plans <laughs> to go <laughs> to go and see each other outside <laughs> to, so so in the same way that apparently the bomb uh, has been fixing the data so that we all believe in the fraud of climate change. They're also fixing the anti-picnic forecasts to make sure we don't go and spend time in the sun. I mean, having spent a bit of time in politics, I wish we could fix shit like that. I mean, <laughs> if you could fix shit like that, you can fix just about anything, yeah. can't you? No. Yeah. Uh, for, if, you, if you can't control the Daily Telly front page, you can't control the weather forecast. <laughs> exactly. If you can't control what's going on at Holt Street, what, what, what hope do you have? Yeah. I, I also noted, well, there was Joe Root's comments last week you know about his desperation to be there but showing a little bit of caution about sort of going all in and Tim Payne returned survey in classic sort of Ashes Bantz style you know I, I think that a lot of what Tim Payne said was quite sensible by the way that it makes sense for them to want to have to want England to have excellent conditions here because at some point soon Australia are going back to England and they're not going to want to be mm. stuck in, 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 in sort of relatively punitive conditions so it all, it, it all tallies that it's in Australia's interest for England to, to effectively get what they want here but the little drive-by at the end around um, you know 
basically, the ashes are happening, champion, get on the plane or fuck off. Now, he, he was less crude than that, and he did note that in, in the modern world, you are permitted not to come, and if you don't want to come, that's perfectly fine, but, you know, can't wait to get you to the Gabba. Was fairly was fairly clear as well. The subtext was pretty clear, and it didn't travel well, Jeff, when people read that report here on, on Friday morning. There was a sense of, like, for fuck's sake, is Tim Payne lecturing, you know, is Tim Payne offering a lecture to the England players on, on, on this? Now, that wasn't the case, but I get why it didn't travel well. I, I read Barney Renee's riposte to it, which was fearsome. And, you know, I certainly appreciate that that's a perspective on this as well. I, I, I saw the reporting on this and so I went and found the clip and listened to the whole segment. Mm. And, uh, look, this, this, may, this may be unpopular coming. Like, I wouldn't say I've been a... 100% green and gold supporter of the Australian team over the years. I thought it was fine. Like, I listened to it and I thought, yeah, okay. obviously Tim Payne knows that what he says will be reported and he's not he's not naive in that way and he knows it will be picked up. But it was pretty tame and what he was saying was accurate in that the series will happen, all of this sort of angst about will it or will it not go ahead. It will go ahead and that a team will come and it doesn't matter if a few members of that team decide not to come. 11 players will be there for the first test match in a squad of 15 or 16 or 32 or however many they pick these days. It's going to happen. So I just felt like he was saying, look, stop all of this faffing around about it and all this this back and forth, this palaver, this brouhaha, um, if you will, which was, you know, which was more measured than the tone of the show he was on, which was a lot of like, oh, the big fella's giving him a clip on the way through kind of stuff. Um, they wanted him to go harder on it and he, and he wasn't. So, look, I thought it was not unreasonable, but obviously anything mentioned about either country about the other one inflames parochial tensions at a time like this. Yeah, I, I think I agree with all of that. I listened to chunks of it before we recorded today and having read the comments and then having heard the comments, I think it was, yeah, I, I, I agree that it, it, it wasn't him going out to go all guns are blazing, but he's savvy enough to know uh, that how that's going to end up getting reported at, at the same time. So um, I suppose good on him for getting out there and uh, using his platform. Uh, you know, he's, he's got a radio show now and he, and he knows how to drive the agenda. He's been around for a very long time, Tim Payne. So yeah, professional respect on that front. Respect the... Yeah, respect the hustle, you know what I mean? But equally, I, I understand why people in this country, you know, the aforementioned 140,000 people that died of COVID don't particularly take kindly to even a subtle lecturing from anyone about how hard it's been over the last couple of years. So I would have thought that COVID might provide a, a bit of a pause in in the predictable, nauseous, ashes bants that we're about to get, but unfortunately not. I'm going to write my column for Wisdom Cricket Monthly about this later today, about, um, you know, about it's coming. You can feel it. Ash, It'll just provide Ash, more Ash, ammo. Ashes, Ashes Bans is know. on the way and, and COVID's, but yeah, exactly. COVID's going to be part of the weaponry rather than something mm -hmm. that might cause um, the, the, the opposing sides. And I say that extending yeah. beyond the 22 players and into the, you know, I saw some stuff in from the Australian press this week and I've seen some stuff in the, in the UK papers mm -hmm. last week and, you know, without even sort of you know, we're, we're a month and a half away, or two months away, sorry, and we already know what it's going to look like in two months' time. It always does. It's just, yep. it's just so boring. We'll have Nathan Lyon going down into the stump microphone saying, "How was your PPE procurement through the first few months of the pandemic, champion? How was, how was, 
How was the transparency on your contract provisions <laughs> from donors to the party in government? Uh, look forward to it. Good time. Uh, Jeff, I'm looking forward to the, the end of the, the women's multi-format points series, uh, mostly at the moment, between Australia and India. Their test match finished in a stalemate on Sunday. It looked for about an hour as though that wasn't going to be the case when Lanning declared about 139 runs behind, I think it was, so having just passed the follow-on. It was kind of immaterial whether she declared or not because the final wicket would have fallen and, and, and the same dance would have played out in the third innings. But at one stage, India were going at about fours, seven for none with Mandana having made a century in the first innings batting beautifully again alongside Shafali Verma but as soon as Mandana got out even though they changed the batting order briefly it looks like the wind came out of the sails and if there were any chance of winning the test match they needed to declare with sort of 55 overs remaining not 32 overs remaining and yeah. which meant they shook hands after 10 or whatever it was and called the whole thing off which I thought was a little bit of a shame because the probability of Australia hauling down 240 in let's call it 53 overs was such was so low on the final day of a test match it was Mm. I mean, really from that point one team can genuinely win and that's India and they didn't sort of grasp that opportunity. And I reckon, Jeff, that's largely due to the fact that women don't play enough multi-format cricket. No, sorry, multi-day cricket, rather. If you play, you know, if that was a championship game or a shield game, I think both captains would have been savvy enough to have realised that this is about getting the third innings out of the way as quickly as possible. The fielding team would have been satisfied with leaking runs and the batting team would have been like, we are changing the order. We are putting the foot down. Wickets do not matter. We're declaring as soon as we get to about a lead of 240. But that natural conservatism that we've seen before in women's test cricket mm. uh, prevailed. And I think, yeah, it comes back to that idea. They only get one chance every couple of years and you don't want to be seen to have fucked it up. You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow, as uh, Eminem once <laughs> wisely told us. Look, it, it was pretty frustrating watching that last day. It, it felt like a situation where, you know, follow-on in a five-day match is 200, follow-on in a four-day match is 150. Australia got cautious trying to get past the follow-on because there were wickets falling and they were anxious and it was taking time. That was the kind of situation where Lanning could have cooked up a sort of Hansi leather jacket sort of situation with Matali Raj and said, if we declare behind the follow-on, will you agree not to enforce it and do it that way, get them, you know, get that third innings happening mm. a bit sooner in the day. That was one possibility, particularly, you know, when, uh, as I said, as wickets started to fall, you could tell it was going to take longer for Australia to hit the follow-on mark if they were going to do it. Right. So there was that and then there was the lack of urgency with which India went about things when they batted, but also the defensiveness of the Australians in the field. You know, they were... They had the field pretty well spread. They were looking to stop boundaries and so on, which what's the point at that stage? You want your opposition to score, you know. You've, you you don't necessarily want to Burt Vance it and bowl a 17 ball over that goes for 70 runs, but you want them to get a bit of a wriggle on. And so, yeah, it, it just, as you say, that, that baked in conservatism that you don't want to be the team to lose the test match and you're more scared of that than being the team to win the test match. So, uh, yeah, Matali Raj declaring with 32 overs left and then calling the game off after 15 of them. There's still 17 overs to play and they're two down at that point. It's not inconceivable that you could still win that test. Like, it's probably not likely, but why why not bowl the last 17 overs? Why not see if you can get a panic to happen? But also, as you say, why not give yourself 50 overs instead of 32? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I wasn't actually watching the very end of it. I was watching uh, our friend and uh, final word contributor, Will McPherson, run the London Marathon at the very end, and thus I didn't see the, the declaration. But I watched until quite deep into India's second innings. And, yeah, it, it struck me that... Lanning and the Brains Trust in the Australian team didn't quite clock that. It was in their interest to let India score at five or six and over, or even four and over, yeah, consistently through. It was in their interest for India to declare quicker because then they had a chance to win the game. And you could only read Lanning's declaration at 139 behind as evidence that they wanted to try and chase in the fourth innings. It wasn't as though they were batting until they were all out then you might have some doubt in that. But Heather Knight did a similar thing in Taunton back in 2019. She declared, I reckon, Jeff, about 140 behind. But on that occasion, Australia in the third innings had no incentive to bat quickly or to give England any total to chase because they only needed a draw to guarantee they would retain the women's ashes. They'd yep. won the one day as 3-0. They needed eight points to, to secure the retention. And, and thus, Meg Lanning and Matt Mott were very clear that they were relaxed about not offering up England the grandstand finish. In fact, they said that England didn't deserve the chance to win the game, and they were right. They were accurate when they said that because they'd outplayed England across three days. The same, in a way, could be said of the fact that India deserved to win the game more than Australia did in terms of sessions one and, and, and passages of play. The decisive passages of play um, through the, the four days were largely won by India. But, uh, you know, India needed to be willing to run the risk of losing, however infinitesimal, in order to get a chance to win with so much time lost out of the game. Which brings us back to the the familiar conversation that you and I have had, I don't know how many times around women's test cricket since we started covering it together in 2015, you need a fifth day. That's not just because of rain, although that's a part of it. It's because women's test cricket is played at a slower tempo at this stage. Why? We don't have domestic women's uh, long-form cricket. It's just played at a rhythm, which means that things take longer. And to acknowledge that, I don't see any... Re- and even if it is a fifth day worth uh, 100 overs, does that mean that... Is it a problem that their test matches will have in them 50 overs longer or 50 overs more than men? Of course it's not a problem. I mean, we, we mess around with the number of overs in, in test cricket with men as it is, whether they're playing over five or four days, which is now available to them since 2018. So I don't think we should get precious about this. Heather Knight was on the front foot, Jeff, on Twitter, talking about this yesterday, saying five-day test anyone. Um, I hope that somebody at Cricket Australia is listening to Heather Knight because she's scheduled to lead England uh, in a test match in their multi-format series, starting the series actually uh, at Canberra at the end of January. So I hope that smart heads get together and they realise that that there is the potential to give these test matches a better chance of reaching a result because they seldom do at the moment. Well, when... You look at whether you know whether it's a hundred overs a day or ninety overs a day across five days. It doesn't really matter. It's it is about spreading out the amount of time because of weather as well. When we look at the last few Test matches that have been played in women's cricket, England and India, a couple of months ago, the previous Ashes won at Taunton, twenty seventeen at North Sydney wasn't affected, but the other ones, these last three, have all had significant chunks of time lost to rain. There was more than a session on day one and day two of this most recent test match were gone to rain. Uh, They got through, I worked out, probably about 315 out of 314 out of 400 overs for the match once you factor in four overs for changes of innings. The other change of innings happened at a break, so there was no lost time. They called it off 17 overs early. So if you count all of those as overs bold, they were still 86 overs short for the match. And that 
would have been enough to set up a much more organic result rather than, you know, Australia would have been bowled out in normal time. India could have batted for a longer period of time and could have given themselves longer to try to bowl Australia out. And had they not succeeded in doing that, then a draw would have been a, a more, not a more worthy result, but a more... More palatable, fitting, Yeah, a more, fitting, yeah. A result, a result that reflected the contest better. Whereas as it was, the, the contest only reflected that there wasn't able to be a contest. And had it been won in those circumstances with three declarations in the first three innings, it would have been a contrivance and it would have been better than having a draw, but it wouldn't have, it wouldn't necessarily have felt like a triumph in the same sort of way. And so honestly, I mean, Matthew Mott said this in the post-match presser, and I think that's quite a significant intervention from the Australian coach. He said after, after, to paraphrase him, after putting in all of the effort to set up the test match and have it, how much really does it cost in terms of effort, time, money, whatever, to give us one more day to try to get a result in the test match? We've had so many draws in women's test cricket because, as you say, it's going to be played at a slower rate. Pace of the bowling is one thing that doesn't force breakthroughs as often. It's easier for a batter in a good groove to settle in and just play for a really long period of time. It's more possible to do that. The run rate ticks up a bit more slowly. The wickets don't generally fall as quickly. It's it's harder to get those fast-forward sessions of play that suddenly move a test match forward. Yeah, and, and look, hypercourse, uh, John Leather, the great uh, women's cricket statistician, pointed out there have been 142 women's test matches played overall, and this is the seventh to feature three declared innings. So, yeah, you get a feel for that, don't you? If you're declaring three times in a match, you are trying to artificially move the game forward. By contrast, there have been 2,433 men's test matches. Only six have featured three declared innings. So the contrast there is clear. Mm. What we're seeing in women's cricket is a different pattern because they don't have a fifth day, and that's easy to fix. I'm glad Matt Mott said that. Look, you know, I also saw some reportage overnight. I think Malcon had a piece about this um, which reflected that some people in the hierarchy at CA didn't much fancy this being a test match to begin with because they could have devoted the resources or reallocated uh, the money to having more women's big bash games on TV. So from that I read that even though there seems to be momentum for more women's test cricket and women's multi-day cricket. We're hearing a lot more of the, mm-hmm. from this. We heard from the, uh, the Australian Cricketers Association a couple of months ago, for example, and, and sort of high-profile advocates who are out there on the front foot and are no longer sort of saying, well, every dollar spent in test cricket is a dollar that's not spent on growing the game with T20. There seems to be a balanced approach now that mm. we can kind of have both the games grown to the point where women's test cricket can be a part of it. Well, I hope that that's a view that's uh, a view that's also being maintained in the decision-making corridors at Jollymont and not just one from those sitting outside the tent. And I suppose the proof will be in the pudding next year. South Africa is scheduled to visit England next year. Will the ECB invite them to play a test match and, and conduct a multi-format points series? They didn't against New Zealand this year. They did against India. What about South Africa? They haven't played a test match for seven years either. What about when India go home and they start hosting bilateral cricket again, will they invite a team to play a test match? So the responsibility is short on CA and in the short term whether they will uh, have a fifth day at Monica in January, but on other boards too, how committed to this are we and how can we take the next steps to ensure that domestic competitions follow suit? And fundamentally it's about what you as a cricketing culture hold up as important. Now, maybe if you're a 
young cricketer growing up in Nepal, maybe playing in the IPL would be the pinnacle of cricket for you. Maybe that would be the greatest thing to be, you know, in in front of a CSK home crowd going crazy or, you know, playing for Sunrisers Hyderabad. And, you know, fairly so. In Australia, we still fetishise the baggy green. We still pump up test cricket. Every male domestic player would, even if they're just parroting the Lions, would say test cricket is the pinnacle. CA market it that sort of way, the pinnacle of the sport where you truly find out what you're made of. The baggy green is the sacred uh, you know, artefact, all of this stuff, which even if it's a bit cringy, I think you and I would, we fundamentally have the same kind of attitude that test cricket means more to us than other cricket does. You can't have that exist at the same time as you're not providing adequate opportunities for Australia's women's team to play test cricket. Like yep. you just can't do the two, the two things cannot be true at the same time. It can't be the most important thing and also not important enough to make it accessible to the women's team. So more multi-format series uh, teams other than the big three now, it's great that India have started doing it. Hope they keep going. Hope they host tests in their home conditions. And we see, you know, we see Meg Lanning batting on a raging turner somewhere. Like this is exactly the kind of thing we want to see. But yeah, it's, it's got to be broadened out to other teams as they visit to let them have the opportunity to. Yeah, well said, well summed up. Uh, I, I would just reinforce the idea that if you're a little girl growing up following cricket, it is wonderful that you will have women icons. I mean, when Winnie... I think about, you know, it's hard not to put myself in as having a daughter now with this. When she grows up and watches cricket, as presumably she will, it's brilliant that she's going to be able to watch on television or go to the game and watch women play as role models. But it's unlikely that it's going to be the biggest cricket being played around the world. That's still going to be the preserved men for the for the however long. They won't be on an even footing, and thus it'll be men's test cricket, which is seen as the pinnacle of the sport. Certainly in Australia and England, I'm not speaking for India, that's not reasonable, but certainly Brett Coley um, says that test cricket is means the most to him and others of his vintage too in that Indian dressing room. So um, on that basis, how can you then deny that opportunity to half the population, more than half the population? So look, what are that, what's that old campaign slogan? More to do, but heading in the right direction. Uh, much as it is with DRS, I mean, yeah, it was annoying that DRS wasn't there, Jeff, but it certainly wasn't. I mean, this is one of those ones where I think sometimes uh, well-intentioned people can miss the mark a little bit. People ploughing into Cricket Australia about DRS and not being there at that test match. That's not quite right, is it? I mean, this wasn't to do with CA. This was to do with the inability to get the technology across the border. I mean, you know, there was going to be DRS had this been played in Perth as it was scheduled. Yeah, the plan was for there to be DRS at, at the Wacker um, in Perth. They had to move the uh, the test to Queensland to, to the Gold Coast. And look, if, had Scacey been around, he might have been able to <laughs> write the cheque. I don't, I don't know, honestly, if CA had ploughed a stupid amount of money into it, whether they would have been able to bribe the right people to get the trucks in or whatever it was. I don't know if it was logistically too difficult because of how much it would have cost or if it was just impossible. But either way, it was it was a bridge too far to to get it done for a, a ground that was only confirmed as the host of the match three weeks out, was it? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, yeah, it couldn't happen in that instance. There were a couple of wrong calls. Uh, you know, Australia got the rough end of a couple of them as well so it, it's not like it was something favoring the home team it sucked that there was no drs but there was a reason for it and there will be for the ashes as there would have been for the perth test uh, how exciting is it by the way that we're going into the pointy end of a multi-format point system that's a bit of a jarring sentence but where i think india are the team in form uh, you know i think that india should 
I mean, yeah, they'll have to win three zip to win the series overall. But if they they win two one from here in the T twenties, that's and look they. They, they have played some very, very good cricket. They should have won the, the one day as 2-1. They dominated more of the test match than Australia did by some margin. They should go in with plenty of belief in these T20s. And what a result it would be if they did end up winning two or three of the T20s in terms of really reinforcing that message from the T20 World Cup last year that they are a big dog and they are going to seriously contend with Australia and England, let's say, um, over the next generation or so. That, that's a great thing for women's cricket. And that they're, they're not rattled by... By that, by choking in that one-day game in the second match that we talked about, the the fact that they bounced back to win the next one in another close one and didn't bottle it the, that second time a close result came around, and all of that coming after they were wiped out in in the first match, it's pretty significant. The significant omissions for Australia start to show as well. So Megan Shute not there to take the new ball, uh, Jess Jonathan not there, who's just been the most important bowler for yep. Australia in so many matches without being noticed, but. She's so often the player who comes on, you know, goes at three and a half and over or something in a T20 and picks up two wickets and just does a job at taking the wheels off uh, for the opposition. So those omissions seem important. Rachel Haynes, I'm not sure if she'll be fit either. And, you know, Australia brought all the young gun quicks in for the test match. They had Darcy Brown and Stella Campbell there, which was um, exciting to see for the future. Uh, but the, it seemed like the occasion got to them a little bit. Um, they weren't weren't particularly threatening in the first innings of that, that India innings that went on for about two days. Yeah, and the story came out later that Stella Campbell required long spikes for her boots and didn't know what they were, and Mitchell Stark went and got her some. Like little, you know, it, you're, it's a reminder that some part of the men's game haven't quite washed through the women's game yet, and it's small, but, you know, a significant little story that, that came out um, after the fourth day uh, there at the Gold Coast. But, yeah, I I know it's very difficult to, to, to criticise the, the Australian women's national cricket team. They've been... A tour de force over the last four years especially they've won everything they've pretty much won every game in that stretch of time be it 20 over 50 over I mean they have been so dominant but if they were to lose here uh, they will well there should already be I'm not covering this series in a written capacity but there should be scrutiny over the way they played that test match I might get um I might not be allowed in the country for saying that the Australian women's cricket team didn't play as well as they might they, they are such a protected species but I'll tell you now if they lose to India that'll be a thing and, and it should be recognised as a thing. And there shouldn't be any mollycoddling around this either. I mean, you know, they have got, as Daniel Bredig wrote, all the resources in the world. Despite how India have grown in the women's game in the last four years, Australia still should have them covered with their second team on the basis of the number of professional cricketers that are that are floating around. So, yeah, for all of that and more, I, I'm, I'm pumped for the T20s. Mm. All right. Well, we will... Be keeping a close eye on them, and they should—they should all be wrapped up by the time we record next week. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they're all played in the space of about four days up there in Queensland. Uh, Jeff, before we move on to the middle portion of our show, there was uh, some discussion during the week about whether we actually formally uh, pen in a final word eleven game for the Australian summer. And we had a suggestion come in from Peter Lewis, who's been a great supporter of ours, um, especially with those live Zoom shows that we put on. Peter's been instrumental in making those happen. And, Jeff, he's got an idea, and I quite like it. He's an ideas man. Uh, the Newtown Browns, says Peter. I mean, what a name for a team just, just to start off with. The Dan O'Connell, who I played for, uh, famously known as the Beige. The Beige Brigade at times, but um, if we steal from New Zealand, but the Browns, the Newtown Browns have been playing together since the 80s. Uh, They have a lock on Birchgrove Oval, which is Harbourside, and a turf wicket 
on the Tuesday before the January 26th public holiday. For the past decade, they've been playing a team called the Goons, the Browns and the Goons. Uh, it's usually Goon, then Brown, depending <laughs> oh, on which way you go. Uh, but their numbers, the, the Goons' numbers have dropped off and they're now scrounging kids and second cousins. So Peter says, can we find a way to constructing a final word team to take on the Browns? The Browns are a team in their 40s and 50s with one or two young'uns, no one having played high grade except one ring-in who played one game against the 1989 Australians <laughs> for minor counties. <laughs> <laughs> well, that alone, that alone, to play against the man uh, who played against the 89 Australians uh, for the minor yeah. counties. We're going to talk a little bit about the 89 Ashes Tour with Philip Brown in a sec, actually. But I think that alone means that we should do this. Mm. I, I mean, I know that our, our, our spiritual home ground for the final word is Melbourne more than Sydney. I know we've been mm-hmm. quite critical of Sydney over the years as a city, as a construct, as a, as a state, really, mm-hmm. as a broken, failed state that is New South Wales. However, yeah, with all of that said... A, as- as the, the seething scum pond home of Abe Saffron and <laughs> Roger Rogerson and you know, Nettie Smith and all of the uh, all of the ICAC, uh, what have they lost? Three premiers to ICAC, and apparently the problem is ICAC. They shouldn't. This this has this. been all the coverage out of Australia <laughs> during this. the week. You shouldn't have an independent commission against corruption because it keeps ruining the careers of politicians. Hot tip. If their careers are being ruined by a commission against corruption, the problem may be with the uh, the people being investigated, not the other. And you know, and you know that when you go in the the public life, you know that if you want to be a little bit corrupt, you probably can get away with it ninety eight percent of the time. The problem is the two percent that you don't means you give away your you lose your job when you're a little bit corrupt. Mm -hmm. You lose your job. That's the price Mm -hmm. for doing business. That that that, the rules Mm -hmm. of engagement. So anyone that says, oh, you know, but. She only just, it was just a little, I mean, it was just a little bit of, and it's just a little the, taste. Because of the, and the, and the, no, no, you know, made a decision, yeah. got pinged, ICAC mm-hmm. said no, that's the mm-hmm. deal, you'll lose your job. Anyway, this isn't a political mm-hmm. podcast. The point it's is, very, is that, it's very Sopranos, though. You know, every time someone gives Tony an envelope with his cut and they say, here's your taste. It's yeah. like, man, you know what? It's, 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 like, it's like the non striker stealing ground. You can steal ground all day long, but if the bowler mm-hmm. wants to take your stumps, you are out. You're out. By the rules of the game. The same applies to corruption in public life. You can take the piss. You can take money. You can rort the process in favour of whichever way you want. But if you Mm -hmm. get caught with your pants down, that's it. Game over. Anyway. Look, so the important thing is Sydney has a nice bridge and (laughs) we would be happy to play a game of cricket there. Down Harbour Side. Maybe we can get Malcolm Turnbull to pop by. He'll be nearby um, in the in the big house, not the big house, <laughs> not where some of the other liberal politicians go, but uh, his big house. And um, yeah, Peter, I, I hope we can. So if you if you're in Sydney and you want to play a, a very very social level game with people who are not very good at cricket, i.e. us, let us know. Later part of January, um, drop us a, a message in one way or another. All right, Jeff, before we get to our feature interview with Philip Brown, I think we should find time for just a tiny wee bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. Mel surely said I hadn't done a full-voiced one of those for a while, so there you go, full voice. Back in the sauna. It's a game. Back in the sauna, you can give it big. Back in the swing of things. Uh, Yeah, you can... (laughs) There are a lot of things you can do in the sauna that you can't do elsewhere. Have you been in one of those um, Scandinavian saunas before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't say often. I wouldn't say my life brings frequent opportunities to sauna, but I've... Well, I've, I've been to Antarctica on a ship 
and because you go to somewhere that's very cold it's necessary apparently to have a sauna so that you can get warm afterwards so it's quite it is quite a bracing contrast to you know pop out of the sauna in your towel and then do say a lap of the top deck when it's about six degrees below zero and icebergs are floating by i was gonna say um, it's not like the contrast. swedish ones where you jump in the drink after being in the sauna you can't jump in the drink in antarctica you don't come back no. out. <laughs> you would die instantly <laughs> yeah i remember having that conversation with one of the with one of the, the sailors on the ship they're all russians crewing this ship and, and i was like there was an iceberg floating past about 10 meters away and i said if i fell in would i be able to swim to that and he goes no you drown <laughs> just that like you freeze instantly, all of your muscles seize up and you can't move and you sink like a stone. So don't get in the water in Antarctica. Those are unless you're unless you're at the beach. I did swim there once, but it was it was off off ground level, not off off a ship. Jeff, your not tales of Antarctica might might be a piece you should write one day. Maybe you have. And yeah. I haven't I haven't read I have it. actually. Yeah. yeah. I wrote a I wrote about it somewhere once. Uh it was in a it was in a magazine in Sydney that got discontinued at some point, but it was called Pan magazine, P A N. Maybe you can find it on eBay. Look, the Our important number. thing is Nerdplitch. Yes. Nerdplitch. Well, first, how does the game work? Here's the thing. Uh, we need people to fund the show and bless them, they do it. They sign up to Patreon and they send us contributions to fund making this and, and the other show on the weekend. But they don't do it by sending a normal round number like you would, like here's a $2 coin. They send us a specific number because it relates to cricket in some way and we have to guess what the relationship is. Our nerd pledger is Daniel Price, a name who, that's come up on the show in recent times. And the number is $2.82. Or maybe it's pounds. I think this one's in pounds. Two eighty-two. Yes. So Daniel was the player of the match in our vaccine game, <laughs> our final wet 11 against the Oval Dream Boys a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't relate to his own astonishing uh, summer of runs, which I think has been... I think he's had a big summer with the bat. He's a fabulous player. But um, yes, 282. Uh, he, well, Daniel is 20 or 21. So Jeff, my, my only steer for you on this was that it's mm-hmm. unlikely to be something um, you know sort of nostalgic from the 90s or something like that because he wasn't born in the 90s right. so take that as you will yeah I, I did wonder about that because uh, I thought that could be true but then again I thought I never watched Tip Snook go around you know <laughs> but I'm very interested in the work of Tip Snook now but I, I did take that tip and, and look at, at things that were recent and, I mean, the obvious thing to think is Joe Root, astonishing summer of runs. He did have one, but this pledge arrived in July, so Joe Root hadn't even started his astonishing summer of runs, really, at the point at which the pledge arrived. So it can't be the runs that he made against India in that series. I looked at Root earlier in the year. 282 is what I'm looking for. Root did make 258 runs in the Chennai test because he made 40 in the second innings. Mm. But he's never made 282 in a test match. Okay. At one point I thought, what if it's 282 boundaries in a season? And I spent a lot of time trying to find that in various forms in first-class cricket and so on, but it's there, there's nothing put together with it and it would have taken an excruciating amount of manual work. So I haven't continued that at this point. The most fours Joe Root ever hit in a season was 125. So to hit 282, you'd have to be going pretty well. So I I looked at a couple of series. The Australian summer of 2018-19 when India beat Australia down there for the first time. Virat Kohli made 282 runs in that series, including one of the best hundreds I've ever seen, I reckon, in Perth. Um, That was just just extraordinary on a very fast deck that day. Miss Barrel Hark made 
282 runs during the England series in 2016, one of your favourites. Um, so that was a big summer of runs. I don't know if it was astonishing, though. No, I wouldn't say it was astonishing. The 100 at Lords was walking in at sort of not enough for four and, and sort of holding the whole thing together. The push-ups in front of the pavilion. And I agree with you, by the way, that Coley's 100 at Perth's one of the best I've seen. In a way, it's sad that it was in a losing effort. Like It felt like that should be the match-winning 100 that Coley had mm-hmm. to define the series. But, yeah, he made runs in there, one loss in 18-19. So hmm, I'm, willing to, um, I'm willing to move on from both. Yeah, he made 80-odd at the MCG when they won. Um, but, yeah, True. it's interesting how you remember things. If if you make 100 in a win, then you're grand and great. But if you made 86 in the win, nah, piss off. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, was, I was casting around. I did actually recall looking through some of our own notes that you spent a long time on a show once talking about Bill Laurie making 282 for Northcote oh, yes. in a club final. The 25-day innings. The 25-day the innings or whatever it was. I think it was um, that's because they didn't play on weekdays and it yeah. stretched out across, you know, into a fourth weekend, I suppose it must have been. Um, it was a grand final where, yeah, he batted for, I, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but an astonishingly long uh, time. So I, I think what happened was it was a grand final where if it wasn't close to a result, then you would win on first innings points. And the other team, I think it was Essendon, batted first and made about 500. Um, and then Bill Laurie was like, all right, fine, <laughs> fine. <laughs> we'll just make more than that. I'm batting so for a month. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that wasn't going to work, but something that did come up, this probably isn't it, but I liked it because we've talked a little bit on the show recently about Tim David, the man with two first names, uh, the, the Singaporean Australian wonder, the, uh, you know, the best, the best talent out of Changi in a, in a very long time. Tim David, who's who's had a great couple of summers, really. Um, he's had a you know had a good Australian summer. He had a good English summer. He's played in all the short form comps. He's played in the hundred and the big bash in the uh, CPL, and that's what got him picked for the IPL because he he had a, a rampaging Caribbean Premier League. Coley picked him up with a contract for the IPL because Tim David made 282 runs in the Caribbean Premier League last year, was it? Averaging 35, strike rate 146, beautiful numbers for T20 cricket, Tim David 282. That's my, that's my guess, Daniel. But if that's wrong, send us the Daniel Price signal, drop in the DMs or get on the Discord and give us a hint to get us closer to the truth and we'll come back to that number on Storytime on the weekend. And Daniel, you also receive a, uh, a slab from Brick Lane. Specifically, you, you get given a voucher and you can on-send that wherever you see fit. But some great news from Brick Lane this week, Jeff. Uh, we now have an offer code. It's only going to last for two weeks, well, at least in the first instance. And we had complete free reign on what we made the offer code. And we've gone with... Maxi145, capitals, Maxi145, it'll be in the show notes, for 14.5% off for two weeks only, and the starter's pistol uh, is being fired as we publish this episode. So it's pretty straightforward. At checkout at, at Brick Lane's website, which is all there in the show notes, you simply uh, go and, and, and fill your boots and get yourself 14.5% off with Maxi145, which reflects the 145 he made that wonderful night uh, out there at Candy uh, in 2016 in a T20 International. Uh, an emotional night for all involved. And, you know, what better than an innings in Candy to get you a sweet deal? So we've talked a fair bit in the last few weeks about the things that Brick Lane are making, the uh, the beverages, the 
the pale ales, the low alcohols, the hazy IPAs, and, and, and because there are so many kinds of drinks that they're making, you can get a thing called a discovery pack. A discovery pack. Doesn't that sound enticing? Which, which is a mixed pack of everything they've got. Like you can, you can basically customise a case and decide what beers you want in it and have them send to you a bit of everything across their whole range so that you can decide which thing you like and which one you'd like to get more of. And then you can get 14.5% off it. Uh, f- frankly, frankly, lunacy not to at this stage. And also you should uh, – f- we've had a lot of people sending in photos of people enjoying their Brick Lane. Keep doing that. That's lovely. Why don't you buy a Discovery Pack with Maxu145? Do it now. Uh, get it in time for the weekend and share that with us and with Brick Lane. All of the social handles are in the show notes. Great to be uh, working with them and doing new and creative things with them through the course of our – what I hope will be a long and productive relationship, Jeff. BrickLaneBrewing.com uh, is the website to go to. Is it Brick Lane Brewing? I'm pretty sure it is. BrickLaneBrewing.com. Yes, I should know it by now. Uh, and you'll be able to get all the information uh, for Maxi145. Uh, as I say, fill your boots. You are quite correct. And if you'd like to send us a nerd pledge, patron.com slash the final word. You can play the game, be on the show, and potentially win the chance to give away a slab to somebody, as Daniel will have to do because he's in the UK and you can only get this beer in Australia. Sorry, Daniel. All right, we're going to take a quick break on the final word. And when we return, it'll be Philip Brown talking about his book, The Colours of Cricket. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Cricket bats, also pads, gloves, things of this description. People who play cricket want them. People who don't play cricket might want them, frankly. You might just want to dress up and walk around your house. But you wonder which is the best and which is the most affordable. And it can be expensive. And so if you want a really beautiful cricket bat or some a suite of equipment and you want 20% off it, you ask Woodstock. Because Woodstock Cricket make the best bats in the world. They were they won the best bat and the second best bat in all of the UK in uh, in a blind test that ranked them the best among all cricket equipment. And they'll give you twenty percent off because you're friends with us. Couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah, I, I like the intersection between being a brilliant piece of kit, beautiful to look at. The big rebrand they did last year, Woodstock bats are beautiful. And that's a part of it, right? I mean, you can't tell me when you go and buy a new bat that aesthetics don't play into it. Sure, there's the pickup, there's the weight, there's the how does it feel in the hand. But you also want a bat that looks attractive and the big, uh, the big swoosh of the W uh, on the front there uh, certainly adds to the experience. A number of professional cricketers across the UK have been using them this year, much to our enjoyment. Uh, and I think that this is a very good time to be talking about Woodstock because we're building towards Christmas. And what better gift is there to have under the tree? Uh, for uh, uh, maybe a a budding young cricketer or a recreational cricketer that just needs a bit of an extra push uh, into the the year of 2022. Maybe they've left cricket for a couple of years through the COVID pandemic and you want to encourage them to play it again. Why not go to woodstockcricket.co.uk? And if you put in TFW20, which reflects the fact that our podcast is called The Final Word, and 20 is the percentage you can get off woodstockcricket.co.uk. It's all there in the show notes for, as Jeff says, uh, not just the best bat in the world, the best bat and the second best bat. Up there, gold and silver on the podium. It's been an Olympic year. Maybe that'll inspire you. woodstockcricket.co.uk. TFW20 is the code. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. 
It's a final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. With us today for our feature interview, sitting in my kitchen in North London, is the esteemed Philip Brown. Brownie has written well, written and contributed to an amazing collection called The Colours of Cricket that was published a couple of months ago. Uh, he's a freelance photographer, mostly working for Popper Photo these days. He's been in the game for the better part of three and a half decades. Brownie, we have a lot to talk about and you've got some beautiful photos to share with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you make me sound very old. I can still just about walk around and take photos still, so still going. But, uh, yeah, when you say it like that, three and a half decades. It's not quite three and a half decades, but not far off. I think we're getting close when you go back to your first test. I mean, you might get there in a moment, but I, I note that before we um, talk about your pictures, if you're watching on YouTube, you might wonder why um, you are wearing New Zealand... Uh, test-playing jumper number 279 from the World Test Championship final of 2021. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of kit. Uh, what's the story behind this? Whose jumper is it? It's Kyle Jameson's jumper, and I've got a friend in the New Zealand team called Rianne, uh, and I did say to when I covered that match uh, recently, I did say to him, is there any bits of, bits of stuff? shirts or anything floating around that I could have from it. Yeah, he turned up with this. And when I saw 279 on it, Kyle Jameson, I thought, well, that's not going to fit. And I just threw it in the back of the car in a kind of fit of peak. But uh, when I tried it on days later, it seemed to fit. So I don't think Kyle's probably ever worn it because <laughs> he is a different physique than I am. Well, he, he may have worn it briefly because it was a very chilly week down there at Southampton and there is a little bit of mud, I know, there, there on, on the right arm. I'm, I'm, I was going to Google how to get uh, mud out of a... Uh uh, out of a jumper like Well, whatever this. you do, don't wash it. I've learned the hard... I'm a collector of cricket jumpers. If I knew all I needed to do was talk to New Zealand team management to get one of those, I definitely would have. But I know that from yeah, past experience, if you put that in the wash, it will not come out well. So to be handled with care. Yeah. It's probably hand wash or something. something I've never tried in my life, but maybe I will one day. Life is too short for hand washing, Phil. You, you cannot afford to be trying to never buy something that needs hand washing. If it came for free, that's okay. I thought I'd, I'd allay some concerns of people who may be listening to this podcast and thinking, how are we going to look at photographs on a podcast? Good question. Um, if you're watching the video version, we'll show them on the video. But if you listen to the audio show, we'll we'll put them up on, on the patron page as well. Um, we'll. So we'll put up the photos that we've talked about. Maybe even just before the episode goes out so that you can look through them at the same time and, and have an understanding of what's going on. Does that sound like a good plan? It's a good plan. The better plan is to anyone who wants to listen to go and buy the book. <laughs> uh, but but First, it, it before is, listening it is, to the episode. It is quite tricky to get hold of it at the moment. So maybe you, could do, maybe you can have a look, at, as you say, at, at the page you're going to supply, but, but maybe just with a promise that you buy it later. That makes sense. We'll pop the link in as well so that people can uh, find out where to get a copy of the book as well. Right, so let's go back to the start of your career in photojournalism, Brownie, because you may not be able to tell from your accent these days, but you, like me, uh, grew up in Australia and you came out here to work, but you started your career working on, on sport in Oz. Uh, yeah, I started in Canberra. I was, uh, I was very keen on sport. I had a job at the National Sports Centre, which kind of evolved into the Institute of Sport, and I was interested in photography. And I think how it started was probably a boss said, well, you know, why don't you bring your camera into an event? And, you know, they basically wanted free pictures for their kind of programme that was coming out. So I started doing basketball, rugby league, and 
then weirdly because I, I love doing it and I'd spend my Sunday night in a in a dark room in the house and uh, printing up all these pictures then weirdly people started saying oh we'll pay you to do that and I thought this is weird because you know <laughs> I would do this for free and uh, but even better if people are going to pay you to do it and uh, yeah I sp- uh, like I said did basketball rugby league the Canberra Raiders for a while and then moved to Sydney in 86 and, and eventually got some work and uh started doing a little bit of cricket then probably 80s 87 80s was probably my first ever cricket photography i'm afraid to tell you that is actually three and a half decades ago notwithstanding the fact that you tried to push back on that uh, characterization before that is 30 well, 87 for cricket <laughs> it's not quite three and a half de- anyway we're not we're not going to get not into an right i might storm out of here tell me about the first cricket you covered give us a sense of what uh, cricket photography uh, was like in the mid to late 80s I remember being, I had a, there was a picture editor on the Sunday Telegraph who quite liked me uh, called John Jones, who was very supportive. And he sent me to cover New South Wales, Queensland at Newcastle for four days, which was, you know, AB was definitely there. Oh, I'm trying to think, oh, Mick Whitney, mm. Mike Whitney, Mike Whitney yep. was there. And he produced a, uh, during the game, he got a wicket and jumped up and like punched the air very high and if I'm completely honest it's almost in focus still upset that I didn't get that in focus it was quite hard on a 400 mil with a with a doubler to get these things pinned sharp with you you know just there was no autofocus then of course but it did win the New South Wales cricket photo of the year which I'm I'm not sure how many entries there were if there were more than three I'd be surprised but that was a nice $500 prize back Ooh. in 1986 which probably could have bought a house almost (laughs) so I started there uh with the paper and then once I moved to I I moved to England in 88 just the the old you know let's try it out for two years and then go back again in 89 News Limited all the Murdoch papers said oh would you like to cover the Ashes tour and I said yeah why not you know it's a lot of driving around and and did six test matches then and and I was kind of off then off well, not off, but I was... On your way. On my way to doing 257 test matches. Is there something particular about cricket that makes it uh, more fulfilling to photograph? Is it just that the games are longer so you have more opportunities to get shots? So is it? Do you relish it more than doing other sports in any particular way or is it much of a muchness that you can find something interesting in any subject no matter what the sport or the arena? I think what I've got is a lot of patience because the photographers, let's say the photographer on the Daily Telegraph who could have covered the cricket, he decided it was too long a day getting there at eight in the morning and probably getting away at eight in the evening. So, you know, Muggins here said, yeah, I don't mind doing the cricket. But, and, and I suppose the more you do it, of course, you get more skills at it and you can kind of predict what's going to happen and you're looking out for this and that and you know what the story of the day might be. So I... I I liked it in that, you know, I, I, I'm patient. I wasn't in a rush to go anywhere else. Uh, but I'm not, I think my love of cricket photography is a lot stronger than my love of cricket. I don't often find myself cheering for a covered drive or, you know, occasionally, but n- not very often. I'm, I'm there to hopefully get the pictures and not enjoy the cricket. I guess... Any photographer who's done something for, say, three and a half decades or thereabouts would get asked this. But the the transition from 
analog to digital. What was that like in terms of, was it just a relief to not have the pain in the ass of having to develop photos anymore and spend nights in the dark room and so on? Or was there something about that part of the process that was satisfying in a way? I mean, it's very different considering the the number of shots you'll take on digital where it's you'll just fire off thousands of shots in a day and then have to sift through them all as opposed to the more targeted uh, shots that you would take if you were using analog cameras yeah well the, the point is you don't well i don't actually have to sift through them all because you know i'll set up a second camera the remote camera and when i look at those files i'll just go oh, what was that catch like what was that drop catch like and you know there might be 1,500, 2,000 uh, images on that file, but I'll probably look at 50 of them. But, yeah, a massive change when it, we changed from film to digital. And at the time I thought, wow, look at the quality of these digital images now and it makes it so easy and, you know, you can send them off pretty well straight away. But looking back at, you know, that was about 2001 for me, I got my first digital camera, and now I look back at those files and the quality is awful similar to the negative files from the 90s that I look back at and the, again grainy and horrible and just the quality of cameras in 2021 is phenomenal and you know the number of pictures you can take as you say 12 frames a second up to 20 frames a second I think is there a bit of paralysis of choice there for you as well in terms of if you take you know a couple of thousand frames a day that you I mean it, there might be so much for you to spool back through to work out what is the shot that you want to... I mean, not to say you get editorial latitude with what the newspapers end up going with, but for you as a photographer, I mean, it must be difficult. You must miss stuff, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say, that there are photos that are that are absolute beauties that you, you can't necessarily know at the time because you have to move to the next delivery and so on. Yeah, I don't know. The way I work, I normally, you know, if something happens, say there's a wicket, I'll put that card into the computer go through you know go through the last 300 frames and and just click on the ones that are that I think are good enough so I'll probably never go back to that again so if I did miss something in the, uh, looking at uh, going through that editing process you know it's missed forever type thing but mm. I think I'm I think that's part of the probably the the most important skill is knowing which photos are the ones to to, to tag and, and crop and caption and send off. Well, let, let's do a bit of that then, shall we? Uh, this book is, uh, well, it's a work of art, literally. And we thought the best way of structuring uh, the, the major part of this interview would be to go through a handful of them selected by uh, Jeff and myself with a bit of input from you as well uh, with, the, with the photos that have stories that go with them. And what we might do, Jeff, is alternate. Uh, one from me, then one from you, and we'll go through, uh, go through the, the course of this book, The Colours of Cricket. Let's start on page eight, which you've got in front of you there, yep. um, which is from that 1980. Ashes series that you referred to, the Lord's Test match of that summer. The Prime Minister of the day, Bob Hawke, is sitting between uh, the Australian captain, uh, Alan Border, and Dean Jones is in full flight having a conversation with the PM. Well, I was uh, I, I was a bit of a novice at this stage, 1989. Like I said, it was uh, you know my first big cricket gig, and this is, I think, the second test in England that I'd ever covered. And I knew Bob Hawke was there. It was a I'm pretty sure it was a Friday afternoon. I, I was up in the tavern boxes. Anyway, I, I kept an eye out for Bob Hawke, thinking, you know, if he leaves the box and goes down, I must rush down and just try and get a picture of him. And weirdly, I did see 
like a load of people leaving the box rushed down and just kind of joined this whole party of kind of 12 people marching up towards the pavilion and next thing that happened was that they just walked straight in the pavilion during the test match and I had like half a second to decide whether I was going to go with them or or you know leave them there and I, next thing I was in the dressing room I decided to go in with them and you know Bob Hawke went out onto the balcony which is an incredible thing during a test match I mean Alan Border's padded up I think he's the next man in and he just decided to go in and have a chat with them and I am very pleased with this picture I did send it back to the Australian papers and was mortified to see it appeared as a kind of stamp sized picture on page 26 in the uh, Sunday paper out of Sydney but uh, since uh, only a few years ago when I was back in Australia for the Ashes I got to talk to AB as he's called and Dean Jones about the picture I showed them the picture and, and they both told me little stories about it because Alan Border was still really upset with Bob Hawke for his Pat Cash comment when after the Melbourne test of 86 I'm guessing might be wrong on that Bob Hawke had said oh if only we'd had 11 Pat Cashers playing for Australia for the Australian cricket team that would have been better and that riled Alan Border he wasn't happy with that at all I and didn't know is, that so this, this, this is, is a, was this after Cashy won the Davis Cup and yeah I, th- in and 86. I think on the same day uh, Australia lost the test in Melbourne right and right. yeah there was a speech where where Bob Hawke said, you know, we, we needed 11 pack cashes out there. And apparently, AB said the next time he came into the dressing room, he was just told to leave in no uncertain terms. So I don't think many people have told a PM to F off, but AB obviously had. But it, he says he was thinking the same thing. He was thinking, well, you know, why does he think he can walk in here? And Dean Jones also told me that he was complaining to Bob Hawke probably at the time this photo was taken about something called provisional tax where Dean Jones had to pay tax on earnings he hadn't received yet (laughs) and Bob Hawke said to him well if you get a century today I'll get rid of the tax (laughs) that's that Dare I say it? Dare I, that is a, that is a very relatable experience for me, having worked for a prime minister who said similar things to athletes at their uh, at their most joyous moments. Sadly, I think Dean Jones got twenty nine or something. Didn't go on with it. Yeah, had so. to pay, had to pay his uh, yeah. provisional tax in perpetuity. But I was very happy with that picture, and you know, just started. I, I definitely sent a copy to Bob Hawke and got a nice letter back saying, you know, thanks very much for that. But I mean, he was a phenomenally popular politician. And, uh, yeah, happy with that one. Uh, and right at the front of the book as well. I mean, it, it appears in your introductory passage. It obviously means a lot to you that you've, you've put it so far up there and written about it uh, in your intro. Not a lot of photos get that treatment from you. No. Well, there was a time thing as well, but I just thought it was a nice way to start off in, you know, telling a bit of a story behind the book. I mean, there's smaller stories with other, other pictures, but, uh, yeah, but looking back, that was a great time. You know, you're literally in the same hotels as the players and you got to know know them all and yeah it was a different world then and a great way to start great time to start phil the first photo that i've picked out actually the well three of the four that i've picked out are personality shots uh, as i think of them it's interesting with cricket that when you go and watch at the ground you're beyond the boundary and you can't really get 
close, you don't have a, an idea of the, the sort of what's happening up close with these players, whereas these photos take you right up into, you know, into the circle by their side pretty much. So Dirk Nannis tipping the water bottle over his head, um, sort of got the, the cascade coming down his face and it really gives you this visceral sense of, of the heat of where he's playing, of the, the struggle of the day of trying to bowl fast uh, for his country while fighting against the conditions. Yeah. Uh, what what my memory of that picture is, is that the the I'd kind of missed the moment because there was a lot more water going on him just like half a second before. So I look at that picture as a kind of semi-fail. But yeah, tremendously hot in Bridgetown, I'm pretty sure that was. I'd have to read the capture myself. Uh, who though? Yeah, Australia playing Bangladesh, I think, in Barbados. But yeah, definitely hot. I mean, I'd I think the hottest I've ever been was in Mumbai uh, in 2006 when photographers had a lovely kind of shaded area under a roof at one end, but there were 30 photographers at that end and no one at the other end. So I thought, I'm really going to have to shoot from the other end and get different pictures to them. And I think think the forecast was 46 degrees, but that's in the shade, I'm pretty sure. So I think it was 50 degrees there. And sat out in that old day there was a little trough with water behind so every over I'd go out and wet this towel and put it on my head but literally I was spent after a day of that and you know on the bus back to the hotel people say oh did you get any good shots today I couldn't even lift my head I couldn't acknowledge their question so I must have seemed like the rudest photographer in India on that day but uh, yeah sometimes the heat is well, that's it's part of the job. Well, I was going to say it's quite, it's quite a big part of the job, isn't it? Both the heat and and the cold. I mean, we were um, doing that game at Lords at the very very start of the year with Middlesex and Somerset, where it was two degrees outside. I mean, at the very at the extremities of the season uh, and in the heat of summer in different parts of the world, that is a huge hurdle for you to clear each day. Well, I I, I think I'm pretty good in kind of any any temperature really. Man for, 50, man for 50 all degrees seasons. was, but yeah, 50 degrees was pushing. That was probably my limit, but. Thinking about it, I don't think they should have been playing in that kind of heat. It was, it was. Uh, for not uh, England won that test, I think, of uh, two thousand six. Sean Newdale, one of the heroes. Monty Panesar, not so much of a hero when that ball went in the air and he decided not to even run towards it. Speaking of things in the air, let's move along to page one hundred and sixty-one, uh, which was a, a photo which which took me. Uh, Kevin Peterson, who must have been such a such a, a wonderful character for you to photograph because he wore it all on his face, of course, when KP was batting or in the field or whatever. You, you always kind of knew what he what he felt, including in Dubai in 2012 when things weren't going so well and England were mid-collapse. And as he's dismissed and walking past the Pakistani fielders, there he's thrown his bat high in the air, and you've got the shot of, of the of the maker's label as the bat's coming back towards the earth. Yeah, my memory of this is that I had the remote set up for pictures upstairs and like I've said before I don't always look through all of them and it was only the fact at the end of the day that another photographer was just kind of cropping his remote picture and uh, and I suddenly thought oh I forgot to look at that so I went through my stuff and there there was KP there was the bat I think the lights just hit it in the right way and it's just a neat neat photograph but like you say he had a pretty poor tour that one and in fact I, I remember the third test, it was only a three-test series against Pakistan, but I remember the third test and KP went out to bat and I think he might have scored 13 or something. 
And I tweeted soon after. I thought, well, I know his average is like 10.67 for the series. So I tweeted, you know, KP average for the series 10.67 and got back to my the Sofitel, very lovely hotel in Dubai, and I had a direct message from one Mr Peterson saying, what are you tweeting about my average for? And I thought, what? I've never fallen out with Kevin. And I thought, oh, gee, what am I going to do? Is this, this is difficult. And I took about 20 minutes and I suddenly... I thought had a light bulb moment and said, oh, some people were saying your average was four or five for the series. I was just putting them right. And I never heard any more about it. <laughs> Next time I saw KP, he, w- he was fine. So I hope he doesn't watch this. KP, I, l- I love KP. He's great for photos. He's a lovely man. I, 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 I nearly suppose, dropped myself in it. <laughs> I suppose there's a bit of ego management in your job too, isn't there? I mean, on their best days... Uh, you are capturing uh, moments that will live and be cherished by them forever. Stuart Broad in the forward to the book sort of talks to that, doesn't he? That you you give you provide them with a huge amount of joy, uh, capturing them doing what they do best. However, the reverse is also true, isn't it? And you, you are sometimes documenting some of the worst days of their professional lives. Yeah, and you're kind of aware of that. Like sometimes I'll get very close to players coming off, and you know, with a wide angle lens, and think, you know, this could work. And sometimes, well, you think, oh, which players do I kind of maybe not want to be that close to as they're coming off if they've had a, a bad moment or the test? You know, one that springs to mind is again in Abu Dhabi where England needed like 24 more to win, something like that, and they called bad light, so it was a drawn match. And, you know, if it had been Ben Stokes coming off, I wouldn't have got too close because... Not that not that Ben's out of control or anything, but you know you've just got to play the percentages. And even and I took a picture of Joe Root coming off, and he said later, "Oh yeah, Brownie, I really wanted to just hit you with my bat when I came off." So yeah, you've got to give them some space at times and try and work it out. But no one's hit me with their bat yet. Phil, the the sad Kiwi from page two eight six, the World Cup final in 2019 we've all seen the images a hundred times of the teams on the field the New Zealand players um, how they had to try to swallow that loss that wasn't a loss but this is this is one where the pathos of it is it's a new image you know it's not one that that was all over the telecast that day it's this this lone New Zealand supporter in He's literally wearing a Kiwi suit, standing oh, right. okay. alone while everyone else is seated and looking, looking. Uh, uh, the, well, you can't really describe the, the 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 emotion on his face, but it's a it's a beautiful character portrait almost of someone who's not famous in the game, someone whose face you wouldn't have seen any other times, but here it is, and it's telling this whole story. Yep, I, I was even so professional that I've, I I knew it was quite a nice picture, so I've asked his name. Which I think is the you know I go I go the whole way on that normally and like I think it's important that's my training from you know John Jones and the Sunday Telegraph back in back in the late eighties is to to get a name to them uh, but yeah that what a suit to wear to the cricket you know a full Kiwi suit yeah during the semi final against India that was so I th- I think actually they had a uh, they had a good day that day it's a semi final. So that's him just concentrating, obviously. Young Brandon Potter. And if you're watching or listening, Brandon, you know, it's worth buying the book because <laughs> you're in it on page 284. Let's, uh, on that theme, move to page 234, which is a man batting 
uh, in the streets in Dhaka when you were there in 2016, which I know was a big tour for you because you took some photographs that won a number of awards and all the rest of it. But just touching on the idea of, of shooting people who aren't the 22 who are playing the game, you love going off the beaten track. Often it requires permission to do so in countries like Bangladesh, as I assume it was the case with this photograph, beautiful photograph of a, of a, of a, of a guy uh, with steeled concentration having completed a cut shot by the looks of things. Uh, and, and but, you know, being a cricket photographer, yeah, it's about capturing these, these, uh, these professional players who are, who are representing their country. But there's another layer to it as well uh, where you can get out there and, and see people absorbing and enjoying the game for what it is, uh, in this case, in the streets. Yeah, you put it very well there. I think it's a really important part of my job, when I'm, especially when I'm travelling to Asia or the West Indies or even South Africa, to get out there and, and try and capture images of you know normal people, if you like, playing cricket. This Bangladesh tour, there was a lot of extra security on this trip. You know, basically we were we were in a kind of convoy of mm. vehicles going to the ground and things like that. But the the second test finished very quickly in three days when England decided to see how many wickets they could lose in a final session. And I think, I think they might have lost 10. I think they did, which, didn't they? Yeah. They, they, lost, they lost 10 between T and the close of play. Yeah, yep. I think that's right. And so I had two days two days off and most... Which is dream come true stuff for you, isn't it? I mean... Two to, days to, off. To someone like you saying, here's your camera, you are in, you know, you are in Dhaka go for gold. I mean, that's the stuff that, that makes your... It makes the investment worth it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I I had to ask permission, so I went to the, you know, the kind of head of security, Reg Dickerson. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd really like to go out and try and capture, you know, people playing in the street and in the parks and stuff. And he said, oh, OK, what, what I might do is I'll send... Uh, I might send someone with you just to, you know, to keep you safe type thing, which was a nice thing to do. So I, I boarded this bus... And there was a policeman near me, but he didn't get on the bus. So I thought, oh, maybe he's changed his mind and we're fine to go off in this minibus and find some pictures. But then I looked in front of me and there was a, a kind of police ute, I'm going to use the word. I haven't used that word for a number of years, but it's an Australian <laughs> word. For, and you know what type of vehicle it is. Maybe you could explain. Of course, with a, with a tray on the back. Exactly. Three seats exactly. in the front. So, and there were about four armed policemen on the back of it and three in the in the cab so i had a seven police ex- escort with you know guns everywhere <laughs> and we went in and i think this was yeah this was definitely the day that i took this picture of jewel khan uh playing and it, it went really well beautiful light in dakar and you know yeah. he was playing his shots and he didn't really care that there was this mad bloke taking pictures of him <laughs> and i said to reg you know that worked so well yesterday of course that's should be day four of the test I'd like to go out again tomorrow went out the next day no security needed I basically went from a seven police escort to no escort at all I thought that's a little bit strange but that's fine with me yeah I remember when I went when I went out there the year after in 2017 they were very clear to us before we went how, how dangerous it might be I mean this was I think overdone, but alas, this was the message. And I made it clear that I wasn't staying in the team convoy uh, because the hotels were exorbitantly expensive and I was a freelancer, so I was going to stay in the community. And once I made it clear that I wasn't staying in the hotels, like, yeah, you're not really our responsibility anymore. Do your own thing. Uh, and had, had the time of my life. I loved, loved Bangladesh. I'm not surprised that you had a, had a great experience there as well. Uh, Jeff, what do you got next? Uh, I'm looking at page 313, Phil, the Spice Man the the collision this is playing for the melbourne stars there's a couple oh, right. of fielders crashing into each other 
and Fletch has the the dreadlocks going everywhere. He's midair on the way down, and the hair is soaring out behind him. You must love like some players would give you so much more to work with in terms of being photogenic, in terms of having more action in a still image. Because it, I guess, just thinking on the fly, that that's what so much cricket photography is is distilling action into a into an image that doesn't move. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, happy with this one. This was, this was kind of weird for me because on this trip, I suddenly, dis- you know, there was the opportunity to cover lots of big bash matches, and this was me going home back to Canberra. So, this is probably, I think, this is probably about the first cricket match I've ever covered in Canberra, where I was born and grew up. But yeah, on this day, the uh, collisions are becoming more and more frequent with. The, you know the rise of 2020 the rise of the 100 and you really got to be on the uh, you know you really got to be ready for this when a ball goes in the air to you know it's less important to look at the bowler and wait for him to celebrate and more important to try and get you know the catch the drop or the collision and like I say there's been I can think of at least three in the past kind of year of these collisions but this won't work really well because the hair what do we call what do we call that hair? I should know. It's probably not dreadlocks. The, it, yeah, dreadlocks. It, well, it's coloured it dreadlocks. So. Yeah, but yeah. So and they're against a you know kind of black background, so they stand out. But uh, yeah, again, very happy to get that image on that day. That was my first big bash match of that trip. I think I did eighteen, and I was after that. I thought, oh, they're all fantastic, and I don't think I got a picture that good in the next 17 matches. Let's go back to Bangladesh and that tour of 2016. I mentioned that you had a number of photos that kind of went around the world uh, on that trip uh, and one that was from Shakib Al-Hassan at Chittagong, a test match where um, where, where England uh, were playing at the time. And, uh, well, it's a dust bowl, isn't it? As you'd expect in, in that part of the world uh, on those uh, on those used surfaces and you've got the light catching his blade at the perfect angle, dust everywhere as he's stroking the ball through cover by the looks of things and it came ever so close to winning the wisdom comp but uh, is a photo that is sort of synonymous with with what you're able to do yeah again happy with this one the reason probably that i'm so happy with this picture is that i know how much work i had to put into it i literally crawling around in the dust in front of the advertising boards it was amazing no one came up and said what are you doing you need to but I had to get as low as possible. This background only appeared for kind of 20 minutes every day. It was kind of the shadow of the scoreboard uh, that and the mm. people watching. So normally it's the background is just fences and kind of green seats, but, you know, there was this one part of the ground, if you shot into that, the background was, was really nice. So it's just literally waiting and moving kind of four inches every ball, trying to perfect this, the, you know, the picture. And eventually, Shakib Al Hassan played an attacking stroke. And the bonus for me was that the sun caught caught the bat. As oh, so that wasn't on. The, 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 I actually was curious about that. So the, the sun catching the bat that wasn't from you observing it in previous days and noting that no, there were some moments where you could have that happen. I'm pretty sure there's six frames from this sequence, and the the sun catching the bat happens in one frame. So that was. You know, you kind of make your own luck, in a way. Sure. But yeah, that that's the fortunate bit of the of the picture. And at the time, like I said before, going through tagging them, I thought, well, yeah, that's all right, that's all right. But it wasn't like the first picture I sent of the day. It was just, you know, a picture from probably fifteen that I sent. 
Uh, but yeah, it got a. I think I put it on Twitter, and it kind of yeah. It was obvious that a lot of people really liked that how, frame. How important is it in your job now to share photos on social media? Even though, of course, the publication that you're working for has ownership over it. But take that photo, which I remember when you did post that, it went you know, went viral in the usual way. For you to be able to uh, sort of uh, display your work in social media, on social media rather, when there isn't uh, a financial return on it, it's purely down to, I suppose, reminding the world that you're the best at what you do. What do you mean there's no financial return? Well, you know. I'm going to stop doing it. (laughs) Well, I suppose that, that, I mean, okay, I'll frame it a different way. You popping that on Twitter might have contributed to the momentum that that photo had and coming so close to winning the Wisdom Gong that year. Uh, I don't really, I do do like kind of, I do like posting pictures on Instagram as it is now. Yep. Uh, I don't know, I don't know why it's quite nice for, for colleagues to, to kind of like a picture and you know different people to to like a picture but it's not it's probably not an important thing that I do it but it's kind of just a habit that I've got into that I quite I quite enjoy that part of it you know people people praising it or whatever and and a photo like that where you've where you've put the yards in I mean I suppose it's uh, like anything in any professional walk of life you go back to the hotel that night and you know you you look at that frame and, and you have that eureka moment like i have this photo will be something that helps define sort of my professional life yeah i'm not sure i think i just went to the bar with george actually (laughs) that night but no i am pleased with it mainly as i said before knowing that how hard i worked for it like i was on my knees in in chittagong you know working for you know just really trying to work for something but like i said the the lucky bit was the the sun catching the catching the bat in that shot and it turned it from a nice picture into a really nice picture. Phil, page 310, the the solitary batter, this is, so the other three I was talking about were, their character studies in that they're based on the face more than anything. In this shot, the face isn't visible, uh, but it's not your classic sort of cricket photo as a silhouette. It's it's a figure who's not silhouetted. You're playing with the shadow that's being cast on the pitch in in that way that w- is, would be so familiar to anyone who watches cricket at the ground when late in the day the, the shadows become such a, a part of the animation of the ground. And it's... It's a really singular frame in that it's all about the detail of this one figure. There's no other distraction in the frame. And it's it's catching that idea of batting as a sort of single combat pursuit, as something monastic, something dedicated. All of the focus of batting is in this shot. Is This this came from a county match, did it? I, I yeah, did the bobble. I think that's what the caption said. If I do another book, I'm going to get you to write the captions for me, Jeff, because, you know... What have I put? I probably just put Jamie Porter of Essex avoids a bouncer. But I'd, I much prefer what you've said there. I might put it on a sticky label and put it on the page. But, uh, yeah, we do get excited, generally, the handful of photographers that go along to the Bob Willis Trophy final, as we've done the last two years, because it is so late in the season, these shadows appear, you know, the, the Warner stand is probably casting this shadow here. And... Yeah, it's a very exciting kind of half an hour when you've got these shadows appearing at, at Lords. And basically, yeah, it can only happen very early in the season or very late in the season, as we had a match the other day that finished October the 1st. There was only one, what was it, the second, uh, 
the second day, I think, where it was a beautiful sunny day and we, we got shadows. But, uh, yeah, again, very happy with this picture. For me, though, the, the annoying thing is there's a few kind of these manhole things, you know, where, I don't know, sprinklers are or, or you know, things can be hidden in the ground. And I just see them and think, oh, that's a little bit distracting over there. But what can I do about it? Nothing. That's the perfectionist in you speaking there, of course. Um, probably. <laughs> I think so. So how much of your job then is knowing things like the atmospherics, like the conditions of what the light will be like at certain times of year, like getting to the ground you talked about in Chittagong where there was one decent background but the rest of it wasn't. If you're at a multi-day match, will you, somewhere you haven't been before, do you spend the first day kind of scoping out the possibilities of what the light might do and when the sun will be blocked by the stands and all the rest of it? Do you go in ahead of time and try to recce that the day before? Like, How do you keep all of this info in your head about different grounds, where to shoot, when to shoot, where to base yourself and all the rest of it? Well, it's, it's forever changing. Like Lords last week... A lot of it is about the background. The first thing is, you know, you, you've got to know where a good background is. For for the 100 matches this year, it was basically turning up uh, at grounds, not knowing where the wicket was going to be. And a, a kind of rule that I've come up with this year is, is, you know, the closer you can get to the action, the better. So for the 100 matches, if the pitch was on kind of one side, I'd go there. Uh, but I, I don't know. I suppose some of the information just stays in my head, type thing. I'm not. I don't want to give the impression that I'm thinking about it all the time, Jeff. Like you know, I'm thinking, okay, it's September the 18th. This is my spot. I go to at uh, Bristol for this one. It's, it's more kind of turn up and work. A lot of it for me is thinking. There's three, four photographers over there. I'm not sitting with them. I'm going to a different part of the ground, and I'm going to obviously get a different angle, different you know, things are going to work my way that aren't going to work their way type thing. That's really interesting that there, there is a bit of group think about where the best shot is. I wonder whether that's a factor in the oval, especially the gasometer, such such a, a beautiful framing uh, for a photo, especially when players are walking off. There's the, the Kirtley Ambrose, Courtney Welsh photo, of course. That, yeah. That's one of yours that, that meets that criteria with the gasometer in the background and, and the players in the forefront. Would that mean that, and we'll go to that photo in a moment, but would that mean that the probability of you setting up at the Vauxhall end uh, would be less because the, the, the photo is simply not as good as the one from the pavilion end when you, could, when you can get the, uh, get the gasometer in there? Yeah, especially... Well, Partly the gasometer, not so much, but at the oval, there's, a, you know, I've kind of changed my view of the oval, the best spot to go to. I used to work over near the, the where they built this newsstand yep. a lot. But the latest test match, I started off at, in front of the kind of player's gate, I'll call it, where they come in and out. And you can just get so much more stuff of people coming off kind of mm. despair after they've been out and stuff. But uh, the... Can we talk about Kirtley and Courtney? Please. Uh, I remember that day in that I saw a lot of other photographers putting on a short lens and I'm pretty sure Atherton had got 100, so I thought, oh, we must all be like going to rush down and take Atherton going, coming off after his century. And it was only when a lot of photographers all rushed out to Kirtley and Courtney, I thought, oh, no, something else is going on here. So I just kind of joined the mob. So I can't take a lot of credit for knowing what was going on that day. It is a 20-plus years ago. But, mm. yeah, that was, again, a, a stroke of luck that a, a picture kind of worked 
my way and yeah they look very emotional in that picture i'm not even sure what page number that is we didn't even list that i thought when going through mine and sort of said the same thing to jeff let's get some that you haven't been asked about time and time again and, and that's one of those that you you do get a lot of attention for it hangs at the oval doesn't it in the dining room if i recall correctly is that where the oh, i've never been in the dining room i got I just get a hot dog. So <laughs> I, you might be right, but I'm not sure. And it might not be my version. It could well be. Sure. Uh, you know, there was at least four photographers surrounding them. But, yeah, it just worked, I think. Is it uh, Kirtley, who kind of looked off into the distance? Yeah, they were both very emotional, realising they weren't going to play together again. You mentioned the collegiality of, of the industry or, or the profession. It feels to me, observing the photographers that we work with, people like yourself and Ryan Pierce, who jumps out as well as someone who we travel the world with, that there, there's that, um, it doesn't feel like you're rivals. It feels like you're kind of all on the same team. You might have a, it, 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 from our perspective anyway, it feels like you are all working towards getting great photos and you want everyone to do well. There's that spirit there. And I suppose you've had the chance to work with some greats of the game in Pat Eager, for example, who've, who've, who've been instrumental in, in steering you in the right direction over the journey. Yeah, no, that you know, it's a really good bunch of guys, but no, we're rivals. We're deadly. I think so, anyway. So just talking, so, 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 you, so, you, so so much so that at the end of a day, you'll look, look back and and you will be, you know, when you say you're to the point where you you pick up the newspaper the next morning and your photo's there, and if the other paper's not got anywhere near a good a shot, I mean, you're you're happy for, or you, I'll put it the other way, if you've got the lesser of the two shots, you're furious when you wake up the next day. Um, never fear. I, I just try and work as hard and produce as good of pictures as I can. If I, if I know that I've worked as hard as I can and someone else has got a better shot because of the angle or whatever they've been at the other end, that's that's fine. But I'll, I'll just I'll just be down on myself if I know I you know I've made a mistake somewhere or missed something. I mean that my biggest crime is. And it doesn't happen very often. If I look up and realise I've missed a ball, I'm like, what are, what are you doing? You know, you might as well go home if you can't concentrate. And, you know, if there's, you know, 90 overs in a day, 540 balls, I want to have seen all 540 balls through my camera. And if I've missed one just by not concentrating, that's, that's a crime. And even if it requires that juggling act of sending one SD card back to the desk and having one camera going, you've got the remote camera going upstairs, you've got to keep that sequence of events between deliveries going in such a way that you don't miss a ball. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy to do. It's just kind of a, a rhythm that you can get into. The one time that you can kind of be thrown is, you know, if you've had medium pace, medium pace, medium pace, or more, and a spinner comes on, you suddenly go, oh, right, it's a different rhythm now. You know, you've got a, you haven't got time between, you, you haven't got 35 seconds between balls, you've got 15 seconds between balls. Yeah. But you've, ju- you've just got to be on it. And that's the thing about cricket, is you, it's a long time to concentrate. You know, you can, some people can turn up and, you know, they might not be into the cricket as much as another photographer, but if you're doing it properly, you've got to concentrate for long periods of time. So pretty much it's an endurance sport trying to 
photograph the game. I'm, I think about this a bit in terms of umpires are the only other ones maybe and you guys who are furiously paying attention to every ball. Nobody who I see who covers the game as a broadcaster or a writer watches every ball. There are a couple of written press journos who are very attentive, um, as the sort of Sid Monger types who, who pay very close attention to every ball. But everybody else switches off at some point because the work demands that they have to go and file something or type something or take calls or do whatever it is. The broadcasters get rotated off every 20 or 30 minutes. You're just out there. You're you. You've got to you you have to take every possible opportunity you have for the best shot. I mean, it seems like it's as much a, a matter of physical endurance as it is uh, talent and ability with the camera. It's important, definitely. For me, anyway, I mean, I've, I've seen other photographers uh, turn up at test matches who basically, it was more than half the time would say, oh, I'm up, for, I'm up in the press box, I'm going up for a cup of tea and send a few pictures. And they sat at their camera for 39 overs out of 90 and that's you know that's their choice to do but that's you know if I miss like a collision or I miss someone falling on their stumps or or a hat trick or something you know I might as well be off doing something else because I don't want to miss stuff like that it's important to to record this stuff for me and even if you miss I remember a couple of years ago that I was watching you do your thing at Lord's on a rained out day it was the India Test Match of 2018 and you were on the front page of the Times, I reckon, the next day with a pissed idiot running on the ground and sliding onto the covers. Some bloke had been um, enjoying corporate hospitality by the looks of him. And, and, you know, you were still kind of working. Even though it was raining and there was no play, you were always mindful of what was around you. Probably one of the worst photographs I've had published ever. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I probably... Yeah, well, if if it's raining, I can kind of switch off a bit. But, yeah, that was probably fortunate, again, that I'd got that. But... Yeah, there's a, you know, I don't worry if I miss pissed idiots running on the field so much. We had a streaker after a, a hundred match, I think, during the season. He didn't get, well, he didn't get much coverage. <laughs> he didn't make any front pages. Let's go back to Australia uh, for the final photo on page 251. Uh, it's the Nathan Lyon Superman catch off Moen Alley. The Ashes Test of 2017, uh, it's framed beautifully by the scoreboard. Again, we talk about natural framing, we talk about the gasometer, uh, but the, the scoreboard at Adelaide certainly stands out. But all that information there, it's not just the, the fact that Lyon's taking a spectacular catch, it's that almost you can see the whole game in the space of your, in the space of your picture. Yeah, again, I'm going to say, and, and, and it's something I've said many times, is there was a element of luck in that photo because it was after lunch and I thought I need a, I want to get a picture showing the game going on in front of that gorgeous scoreboard mm. which is just absolutely beautiful to me and you know I was set up ready for it and might have even been the first ball when I was ready for this just standing up in the with that angle and that this happened that Moe and Ali hit the ball back in the air and Lyon took off and took this magnificent catch so you know, it still would have been a nice photo if it was just the normal kind of, you know, hitting the ball off his hips type, going for a single. But it just makes it the fact that the ball is in midair and the ball's going into his hand. So lucky, but what a what a beautiful ground Adelaide is. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a joy to be there as often as we are. As I suppose we all will be together in hopefully a couple of months' time. I mean, you sort of like stick your finger in the air and hope a wee bit, but in all probability, uh, well, you did quarantine last year to be there for Australia-India. Uh, Hotel Q, we were there at the same time. Yeah, uh, we both did, yeah. Quarantine together. Uh, and then, uh, and then you, you did the uh, series and had to overcome a few hurdles there, but everything crossed. It should be a bit more straightforward this time around for you. Uh well, I, ha- well, I did, didn't go mad in quarantine. I mean, it's 14 didn't, didn't days. You, didn't you walk a marathon or something? Yeah, well, I walked up and down the room. I, I, it must have been exactly <laughs> 10 metres from the door to the window. And I did... Uh, my aim was to do 100 kilometres in the room. So, yeah, that was a little bit mad. But, but yeah, it's, it's, too, it's worth it. You know, two weeks of being locked in a hotel room and being able to come out and, and cover 18 big bash matches and 11 days of test cricket and training sessions and, you know, be in, be in Sydney, be in Melbourne, you know, be in these places, it, it's worth it. And, you know, if I've got to go through it's no hardship, 14 days locked in a room. For what's been a career worth 257 test matches, what's another 14 days, I suppose? And uh, and I'm sure there'll be uh, many, many more. Uh, there's a reason why people think of you as the best in the world of what you do. This book is a is a glorious thing, The Colours of Cricket. Now, you mentioned in one of your answers that the book's a bit hard to get hold of at the moment. If people listen to this interview or watch it on YouTube, even though you've got the microphone stuck in front of your face, uh, that they might see your hair... Uh, like Dicky Knee on Hey Hey Saturday, uh, which was probably... Oh, I'd, I'd left by that stage. Which I was going to say, probably a, a cultural reference that you won't quite appreciate. In any case, if they do want to get this book, what's the best way of getting it at the moment? Well, there's a, you know, there's obviously loads of sites you can go to, uh, you know, famous booksellers and other, other sites you can go to. And I think it's just a case of order it and be patient you know I've had to be patient I'm patient sitting in a hotel room quarantining for 14 days I'm patient sitting on the boundary (laughs) waiting for a picture to happen for heaven's sake you can be patient waiting for a parcel to come through the door it's not much to ask so (laughs) what we'll do is we'll put a couple of links in the show notes for two of the more better distributors that you've identified so that people can get uh, their hands on the colours of cricket Philip Brown it's been an absolute pleasure congratulations on the book and I can't wait to watch you pitch shy taking uh, many more wondrous photos in the years to come be nice thank you very much for having me it's been uh, it's been great g'day guys this is jimmy nisham you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff lemon it is the final word adam collins and jeff lemon as we come to the end of another weekly show i love brownie he's a great person to have uh in well all of our lives really he's such a positive guy funny dude such a professional as well as he said in the interview doesn't miss a ball watches everything a great sort of filter to run stuff past as well i reckon often when i've got an idea about something because phil's watching it so closely he can give you a, a bit of extra added insight and the book is a beauty you know coffee table style one that i've constantly found myself flicking through and even rach doesn't mind having it sitting on our coffee table in our sitting room you know she's got about 40 wisdom sitting up here on the shelf and she's kind of all cricketed out in here but she was happy to have that particular book because brownies uh, brownies that kind of guy <laughs> Impossible to dislike. I feel I had an iconic moment with Phil Brown that we went to the was it the Apollo in um, in London and watched Midnight Oil. Oh, you went to play. Midnight Oil, of course you did. Yeah, yeah, yes. And and it was well, I guess it would have been 2019. So it was you know Bones Hillman left us recently, and mm. so you know one of the the last handful of shows that the full band played together and, and, you know, being able to, to see them play at that, that iconic spot in London, um, you know, a city where they would have 
rocketed to fame 30 years before or thereabouts. Uh, it, yeah, it felt, felt quite special to to share that. So nice to have Phil on the show. Yes, buy Brownie's book, all there in the show notes. After we hit stop on the recording, we said, which link should we give you? And he's going to put in, give us a publisher link, which will include all of the different book uh, distributors. So you'll find the one that suits you best in the country that you are in. Uh, in terms of housekeeping, we'll be recording uh, story time early in the week. So hopefully that'll be out, fingers crossed, on for Friday, maybe Saturday, as opposed to Sunday when it came out last week, which was all my fault. Uh, but we got there in the end. Uh, I think story time was quite good last week, Jeff. So if you missed it, because we put it up quite late it might be worth um going back into your feed and listening to us carry on uh quite tired but sometimes when we're spent those story time apps can be the most fun so have a go at that what else is there we've got the daily show starting again don't we the daily shows are starting again for the t20 <laughs> world cup we're not going to do the pre-qualifying tournament because i won't quite be back from holiday in time to prep for that but when the tournament proper starts i think that's on the 24th of october maybe the 23rd right. of october something like that we'll be recording every day it would be remiss of me to say that if you want to be involved with our recordings uh, as a commercial partner, um, now is the hour. Get in touch, finalwearcricket at gmail.com. Uh, without giving away trade secrets, we get a lot more people that listen to our daily shows than any other show that we make. It's a weird thing like that. The 20-minute bite-sized edition of the show is very popular. So if you want to have uh, your brand all over, not only the podcast, but our YouTube that's now got about, I don't know, 27,000 subs and we maybe a the better part of 3 million hits, something like that, and we don't even work that hard on it, really. So that, that number will swell uh, as we get deeper and deeper uh, into the year and hopefully into the ashes as well. Yeah, drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Go on, then. And if you want to play Nerd Pledge, patron.com slash the final word, uh, you uh, can be part of the most essential core of people who help keep this show going uh, week in and week out. We love and appreciate you all. This show is edited by uh, David Collins. It's part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Lots of other shows on their network as well if you want to check them out. And if you want to do any like rating or reviewing or just, you know, telling your elderly aunt who doesn't listen to any podcasts yet about how to listen to podcasts and change her life and ours for the better... Go ahead. Who are we to stop you? Uh, we'd love to have her on board. It all helps. I was talking to the, the distinguished cricket writer for The Telegraph, Shield Berry, the senior cricket writer I think he is now, the long-term cricket correspondent. He's been to more than 500 test matches, I think I'm right in saying, more than anyone on earth we worked out a few years ago. He's never listened to a podcast before, but he's heard good things about The Final Word and he's willing to try. He's willing to try. So I've committed to sending him a couple of interviews to listen to and kind of getting the feel for mm-hmm. podcasting. And if it's good enough for Shield Berry, it's good enough for, for anyone else who, who hasn't found pods before, I say. You could get him over the line by saying it's shorter than a session of test cricket. I mean, come on. If, you, if you've watched enough of those, you could listen to one podcast. He's actually, speaking of books, he's got a book coming out soon. So what, how's this? We might get Shield on the show to appear on a podcast before he's listened to a podcast. That'd be something. Hell yeah. Watch this space. For now, though, we're going to say goodbye. It's been The Final Word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. We'll be back with Storytime on the weekend. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. 
almost a year's worth of Nerd Pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.